Our gospel reading for this morning is another familiar one. Like last Sunday's story of Nicodemus, here too the encounter with Jesus is about what it means to be faithful. Nicodemus wonders where it is that Jesus' remarkable gifts from, come from. Jesus, however, turns the conversation around so that what they wind up talking about is not Jesus and his gifts, but Nicodemus and his need to be born a second time, this time from above. And then Jesus spins the conversation out some more so that it reveals God's intentions toward the whole world, that the world through Christ might be saved. In this week's gospel text, something similar happens. A simple request for a drink of water becomes a conversation of cosmic dimensions. And we notice a couple of things right away. The Samaritan woman is a far more adept conversation partner than was Nicodemus. Nicodemus starts talking and Jesus cuts him off, barely letting him get a word in edgewise. And both of Nicodemus' response to Jesus' words are in the form of questions, both of which are variations on, how can this be? The Samaritan woman, on the other hand, asks questions but also makes some assertions, engaging Jesus in theological debate. And Jesus doesn't pull some masculine trump card either, but participates in the debate with her as he would with anyone. The second thing that we notice in this uh, case is that in this case, the encounter with Jesus ends in belief, though in a curious twist, it may not be the Samaritan woman who believes, but rather some members of her community. After her encounter with Jesus, the woman knows that something has happened. What exactly that something was is not clear, but she goes back to her village to tell people that something happened, saying, he told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And that's all it took. And the next thing we know, a bunch of Samaritans decided to believe. They decide to believe because of the woman's testimony and all because of a sermon that ends with a question. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? So much for seminary training and all those preaching classes when the Spirit's moving. Even the most tentative and even doubt-filled testimony can call folks to Christ. As I said, it's a familiar story and a potent one. Now, in preaching this text, the usual approach is to focus on the conversation between the woman and Jesus. That is, after all, the centerpiece of the passage is where the action is. Action that's set in motion, John tells us, by Jesus' decision to go through Samaria instead of going around Samaria. Maybe there was more at work here than a simple decision by Jesus on which way to go. Notice John's language in verse 4, but he had to go. He had to go through Samaria. Speaking geographically, map-wise, it's not the case. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, most Jews in his days would have avoided Samaria like the proverbial plague. They'd have gone around, not through. But something made Jesus go through Samaria, some imperative that John doesn't name. And we can only surmise, I think, that the imperative that told Jesus that he had to go through Samaria, came from the Holy Spirit, which is what draws my attention this morning. Not the central action of the story, not the main characters, but that had to go through Samaria bit. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus hanging, accused of hanging around with the wrong crowd, tax collectors, lepers, fishers, prostitutes, women and men of dubious reputation, 
people outside the bounds of good taste and depending on who you talk to, outside the bounds of righteousness. Such folks were not necessarily beyond the reach of the covenant, but they would require a fair amount of cleaning up before they'd be welcome in the temple. Of course, the same could be sent for everybody, right? Um, nobody was perfectly clean, perfectly righteous. It's just that some folks are better aware of uh, their need for cleansing, better aware of their impurity, and so better able to do the right thing. Others, like the folks that Jesus seemed drawn to, well, they seemed satisfied to wallow in their sinful estate, or so the righteous folks saw it. Anyhow, Jesus was often and rightly accused of hanging out with the wrong crowd. And when called on it, what did he do? Did he apologize? Did he make excuses? No. He said things like, only the sick need a doctor, and I came to heal the sick. Or, who is my mother and my brother? Or, whatever you do to the least of these. Not so much defiant, though we could hear it that way, and certainly some of Jesus' opponents did just that. More like, since when did we get to set the boundaries around God's intentions to seek and to save the lost? Who says that we get to decide who gets loved by God and who doesn't? And our story for today, something similar is going on. And the tip-off for me is that little phrase, he had to go through Samaria. The disciples knew better. They knew Jesus could have walked another way. In fact, they probably told him so. But he went that way anyhow. Samaritans were, as we all know, not so well thought of by Jews. They were a people gone astray, misguided, heretical. Not the kind of folks good Jews hung around with, kind of like lepers and tax collectors and other sinners. In fact, part of the debate between Jesus and the Samaritan woman has to do with just where it is that God is found. Just where is it that God is to be worshipped? On some mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem? And for Jews and Samaritans, this was not an academic question. And it certainly wasn't debatable. It was what it was, the place where God was to be worshipped. But Jesus tells her that God is worshipped everywhere, that God is not limited by our boundaries of geography or theology, but is worshipped wherever folks worship, in spirit and in truth. Which pulls my attention back again to the disciples. For them, as for most first century Jews, as for most of us today, God is limited by our boundaries. Now, we might not say that out loud. It sounds wrong when we say it out loud. But if we're honest with ourselves, we, we have to admit that we set up walls all the time. Some of those walls are more permeable than others, but they are walls all the same. We do this whenever we decide in advance where God is and where God isn't, who God is with and who God's not with or even who God blesses and who God doesn't bless. Now, to be fair, we take some of our wall-building cues from the Scripture. But again, I think if we're honest, we have to admit that they're made up, too, of our own biases, our prejudices, our own understandings about who and what is clean or unclean, who or what is righteous or unrighteous, and where it is that God resides. By walking through Samaria, though, Jesus reveals to his disciples that God is not bound by human walls. God is, in fact, everywhere, in Jerusalem and in Samaria. God's everywhere. And there's nothing we can do about that, not even from the best of intentions. 
We simply cannot keep Jesus from hanging around with the wrong people. We can't set a limit on God's presence. We can't restrict the worship of God to the place where we feel at home. Jesus had to go through Samaria to show us that. It was a little over three years ago that I began to feel a restlessness in my spirit. And I began to ask myself what that restlessness meant, where it was coming from, where it might be taking me. It was restlessness, not dissatisfaction, not unhappiness. Things were going well in all aspects of my life, including my work here at East Chestnut Street. I was happy and fulfilled in my work. and My love for you was uh, as strong as ever. And yet I felt this restlessness. I talked with my spiritual director about it. Like a good spiritual director should, he encouraged me to pay attention to that feeling, encouraged me to hold it before God in prayer. He encouraged me to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to me in that restlessness. And so that's what I tried to do. Now, to be honest, even as I was trying to listen and to pay attention, I was also busily trying to talk myself out of it. I really don't do well with disturbances in the status quo. I am at heart a conservative person, all that empire rhetoric notwithstanding. I don't seek out new challenges. I, I don't look forward to the next new thing coming toward me, except for the Kindle. I am. <laughs> but that's now an old thing, so. Anyhow, I am at heart one of those people who prefer that things just stay the way they are, assuming that they're going well. That's just to say that the first year of what I now know to be discernment was taken up with this internal wrestling match between the part of me seeking to be prayerfully attentive to the restlessness in my spirit and the other part of me that wanted that restlessness to just go away. But after a year or so, I realized that that restlessness was not going to go away. And as I prayed and reflected and talked with my spiritual director and some close friends outside of this congregation, I came to think that the restlessness I was feeling might be a movement of the Holy Spirit. And I realized, too, that I had to go through it. I had to go through it to whatever was out there on the other side. In December of 2009, I asked some good friends to sit with me and Mary Lou and have a clearness session together. A clearness session is something that comes out of the Quaker tradition. And in it, the one seeking clarity offers a summary of the issue at hand. And then the members of the circle ask open-ended questions designed to invite deeper reflection in the one seeking clarity. Clarity doesn't mean having all the answers or having all the loose ends tied up at the end of the session. It means having greater clarity regarding the kinds of questions to be asking as the one seeking clarity continues to listen and discern. And by the end of that session and then the few days more of thinking about it, what became clear to me was that the restlessness I felt did indeed come from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was calling me to begin exploring a new call to ministry. It wasn't clear to me that such a call would take me away from here, but I did know that if I were to leave here, it would have to be the result of that call. And so I waited for the call. I did some work. I got my ministerial paperwork in order, the paperwork that's used by congregations throughout the church to select a candidate for a pastoral role. I had some conversations with the denominational ministry office about procedures, and I continued to talk with my spiritual director using almost every session with him to explore what I was thinking and feeling and praying about. I shared my discernment with Linda Gaiman Peachy and Sue Groff as church board leaders, and then more recently with the whole church board, and also with the pastor congregation relations committee. And 
I was grateful to receive their gifts of listening and prayer, and, and I continued to wait. When it became clear that Pastor Sue was leaving, I settled back and decided that my primary focus needed to be on helping her leave well to make her going a good thing for her and for East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. And I obviously did not do that by myself, but I considered it to be something that required some time and energy. At the same time, it was becoming clear to me that I was being called to end my time of service here at East Chestnut Street. It became clear that whatever call I would be receiving, it would take me away from here to some other part of the Mennonite Church. And so saying goodbye to Sue became bittersweet as I was aware that somewhere along the way I would also be saying goodbye. Uh, What I didn't know was how quickly that might happen. In recent weeks, an invitation has come to me from Madison Mennonite Church in Madison, Wisconsin. And next weekend, Mary Lou and I will go to Madison where I'll participate in a variety of meetings, including preaching in their Sunday worship service as part of a candidating weekend. Uh, The search committee in Madison has asked me to do this and is recommending me to the congregation as their candidate for pastor. And sometime after next weekend, the congregation in Madison will make their decision about whether or not they will call me to serve. And once I've heard from them, then I'll communicate again with our church board. And then depending on the outcome of the discernment in Madison, I'll work with the church board on next steps. This has been a long process for me and a very hard process, too. I came to East Chestnut Street in the late summer of 1998. I was 41 years old. I'm not anymore. Mary Lou was around the same age. You can ask her how around she was. Dan was 11 years old. Ben was 8. I was coming from Community Mennonite Church, which was the congregation that started the process of teaching me how to be a pastor. But I was in many ways a rookie. Over the past 12 and a half years, you've taught me an awful lot. I'm not the pastor I was when I got here. Not that I'm anywhere near perfect. You all know as well as I do what my shortcomings are, what my blind spots are, my weaknesses. But for the most part, you've never held those things against me. You've never allowed me to dwell on those things or to be burdened by them or to let those things define my ministry here. You've always been generous, generous with your love, your kindness, your encouragement, and your prayers. And even when I messed up, and I did mess up from time to time, you picked me up, you dusted me off, and you pointed me back to the work of pastoral ministry. And as I look around this room this morning, I see a healthy, vibrant, faithful bunch of folks, a great congregation to pastor. Because you understand that the quality of our life together is never dependent upon one individual and certainly not the pastor. The quality of our life together is a result of each of us and all of us seeking to live out what Jesus revealed to us and to do so with and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That spirit has long been at work here and is working among us today. And the spirit will continue to empower you. We'll keep on leading and guiding this congregation as you move from here into whatever God has in store for you next. If it is the spirit that's inviting me to serve elsewhere, and I believe it is, then that same spirit is already at work preparing someone to hear your invitation when it is given. And all along the way through the transition that comes, the same spirit will be preparing you to provide that new pastor with the same grace and affection and love and welcome that you gave me almost 13 years ago. 
I have been so well blessed by this congregation. Blessed by your commitment to Christ, by your willingness to serve each other in the community around us, by your passion for peace and justice, by your support for Mary Lou, Dan, and Ben, by your sense of adventure and your willingness to try new things, by your patience, by your ability to take the long view, realizing that some things, including forming a pastor, take a while and are best not rushed, by your ability to change and grow and make room for new ideas, new people, new gifts, by your generosity, by your welcome, that famous East Chestnut Street welcome, your sense of humor, your ability to be joyful with those who are glad, and to mourn with those who grieve, and to give folks the space that they need to do either or both along the way. Your commitment to staying engaged with Lancaster Mennonite Conference, and your unwillingness to define yourselves over and against, but instead to see yourselves as partners in dialogue with those with whom you sometimes differ. By your commitment to the larger Mennonite Church, both here in the United States and in other parts of the world, by your missional spirit, something that you had a long time before someone coined that awkward word, by your openness to the gifts of others, without regard to the kinds of boundaries that are honored by the world and much of the church, so that men and women, girls and boys, are able to share whatever God has given them freely and within a context of loving support and affirmation. I could go on, and I may just do that from time to time. Not to puff you up, not to puff me up, to say out loud what I feel in my heart every day. It's not an easy thing at all to contemplate leaving this wonderful congregation, which is probably why it took me so long to come to the awareness that God really is inviting me elsewhere. But I also feel very much affirmed in stepping out in response to that invitation. Mary Lou and I have come to this decision together, and like most married folks, we don't take that sense of harmony for granted. It's been hard for both of us to get to this point, and that we have gotten here together is a gift from God, for which we're very grateful. If there's one thing that comforts me, one thing that gives me peace, one thing that gives us the assurance that we need to take what feels like a huge leap of faith, it's this. God is everywhere, and always, and there's no place God is not. So wherever we go, God will meet us there. And God will remain here also, faithful as always, abiding here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church and leading you to some new place where God will also be. The disciples had something more to ponder as they walked on to Jerusalem following their encounter in Samaria. And I would guess that this new bit of information, this revealing of the fact that God is everywhere and is not limited to our theological or geographical or sociological or other boundaries, I would guess that this was every bit as unsettling, every bit as unnerving as the stuff that Jesus would reveal to them later about what awaited him in Jerusalem. What happened in Samaria, if the disciples were paying any attention at all, revealed that what God was up to in sending Jesus to this planet Whatever that was, it was a whole lot bigger than they could ever have imagined. Not because of some defect in their religious upbringing or their theological tradition, but because they were human beings. And human beings tend to become possessive of things, even God, and assume that their understanding is the sum and substance of all things. That the truth they hold is the only truth, that 
the worship they offer is the only true worship, that the place they inhabit is the one uniquely inhabited by God. So Jesus had them go through Samaria. And so discover that ready or not, God was already there. Ready or not, God is already everywhere. God's not bound by the walls we build, the lines we draw on maps, the fences that we construct. Jesus had to break through those walls. Jesus had to cross those lines. Jesus had to climb over or tear down those fences and so make clear forever and for all time that there is no place outside God's intentions, no place beyond which God cannot or will not go, no place where God is not. And that's good news, sisters and brothers. There's no place where God is not. It was true then. It's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true the day after that and the day after that and all the way to the end of time. That's good news. God is here among us. And here God will stay always and forever. And God is everywhere else, too, always and forever. And God will stay there, too. God is in Jerusalem. And God is in Samaria. God is in Washington. And God is in Tripoli. God is in every country, every continent, every corner of the world. God is everywhere, whether we believe it or not, whether we can imagine it or not, whether we want it to be true or not. God is everywhere and always. And that's good news. And sisters and brothers, God is here in Lancaster. And God is in Madison, Wisconsin. God is here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. And God is in Madison, Mennonite Church. That's good news. And nothing changes that most basic truth about the God we serve. Nothing changes that most basic truth. Not even a pastoral change. And all that will come with it and after it. And as Jesus revealed to us, God will be here to see us through. God will see us through our Lenten journey. And God will be here among and with us long after Easter Sunday, working, nurturing, healing, leading, guiding, and tugging this congregation along, just as God always has and always will. That's good news. Good news that stretches us to think beyond ourselves and our human tendency to limit, to reserve, to boundary. Good news that tells us that no matter where we go or what we do, God is and will be with us always, always and forever. And wherever God is with us, God will be with us. Good news indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.